This is episode 80 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Kenneth Chan Campbell, author of the book, That's What Friends Are For. Uh, It's a novel uh, based upon his experiences getting sober in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. I'm speaking with Kenneth Sean Campbell, who is an author, and he writes books that are really geared towards um, gay men um, of the age 55 or older. He has written a book that I have read titled That's What Friends Are For, which I would recommend for anybody. I read this book, and um, I'll talk to you about my, my feelings, uh, Ken, as, uh, as we get into this, but um, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I guess I'll start by just giving you um, a little feedback about my impressions of reading the book overall. First of all, I'm I'm noticing this year at the age of 55, I'm finally beginning to understand what I have heard all my life about the importance of art in communicating the human experience in a way that um, people can feel and understand. And um, whether that be a novel or um, a play or a film um, or a beautiful painting, Art has a way of communicating in a deeper way, I think, than um, if I were to read a nonfiction book on a subject. Um, and I read mostly nonfiction, so it was a really good experience for me to read a novel about a period of time where I did my drinking <laughs> and wasn't really aware of what was going on. So yeah. um, maybe a good place to start. Um, the, the book is about um, a group of friends who got sober in the 1980s uh, during the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. A lot of it is based upon your life, uh, Ken, and um, yeah. and and people that you knew. Yeah. Why don't we start with you telling us about yourself and your story, and maybe we can integrate um, uh, this book into that conversation. Would that work? Sure. You know, the one of the reasons you mentioned uh, art and, and um, the importance of art, and I, I I thank you for that. I I don't often think of myself as an artist, uh, but when I moved to San Francisco. Um, in 1982, uh, several things happened all at once. One, moving to San Francisco from Texas was a big change. Yeah. Uh, the second big change was a year after I moved, I got sober. And then the third big change was the AIDS epidemic hitting the gay community. And now, 35 years later, I wonder, I've often wondered, which of those three things has impacted me in what way? Mm-hmm. In other words, I know that I've changed a great deal in the last 35 years, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure which one of those things contributed what to that change. And so I wrote this book really as a way to explore mm-hmm. that for myself. And um, what I discovered was, of course, that I can't really separate any of that out. Yeah. It's all one experience. And um, that's that was the main thing I came away from the book with, was that uh, all of these things together were a great impact on, on, on me and on my life. Yeah. So... And you took the and you took the whole story um, through the entire decade of the 1980s. 
So you you know you yeah. start by introducing the characters in 1979, and then you go into the whole decade from 80 to 89. And it was yeah. really interesting to follow the progression of you know the uh, the AIDS epidemic when when people were right. first beginning to become ill and nobody knew what was going on. And but but I think that what really um, got me about it was um, how and I didn't really appreciate this during the time when the when this was happening, but. Um, and you mentioned this in the book, Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States was absolutely silent on the subject. And, um, so that I don't think there was a, I mean, I think that we knew that this was going on in the background of our lives, but if we weren't personally connected to it, you know, it didn't really impact a lot of people. Um, it was something that you would hear on the news and I was drinking during this time. So during the entire Reagan years, I was, I was not really understanding yeah. what was going on. But what I, what, what really got me from this is that, is that during this, during this time, because nobody else was doing anything about this, the gay community had to help themselves. They had to figure out yeah. a way to take care of themselves, just like we do in AA. So you, exactly. you, had, yeah. you had that benefit of having that fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous that also extended over into um, this this epidemic that was going on where people were dying. Yeah. Uh, you know, I and I mentioned this, I think, in the in the uh, introduction to the book where, you know, I hesitated about including AA in this book. Mm. And yet I realized that I could not write this book without talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Um, it, it was such a huge part of that entire experience. And Frankly, I don't know how I would have gotten through that period without without the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I really don't know how any of us would have made it. You know, you mentioned that we had to do everything on our own in the gay community. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, and I hope that this came out in the book, is that so many of us were completely unprepared right. for what was happening. My my father was a doctor and wanted me to go to medical school and all of that. And I just, I had no uh, interest or talent for that at all. Mm -hmm. So that when I started into the, in when the AIDS epidemic started in San Francisco and I was having to be caretaker for people, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea how to do it. And it was not easy for me. And there were a lot of people like that who just had to, step up and do things that they had no idea how to do. Mm-hmm. Many pe- many of those people did it so well. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wanted to, to, to say in the book. You know, you mentioned the structure, too, of the book, that it was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out how to, how to end the book uh, because the, uh, truly the AIDS epidemic hasn't even ended today. No. It's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, how do I, where do I stop it? And in the original draft of the book, it went on into the 90s. Oh. And then I realized that that seminal moment uh, during the earthquake mm-hmm. in 1989 was the place to end this book, mm-hmm. you know, because otherwise there, you know, it was a good, it was a good metaphor, yeah. I think for for um, a, a the the crux of what was happening. So I went back and rewrote the book and shifted the timeline of things uh, so that it would fit neatly into that one decade. So 
that's that was the reason why I ended it the way I did. I did just with the AIDS because certainly the AIDS epidemic went on much longer than that. Yeah, uh, and I was I was doing a little bit of reading um, to find out where it's at now, and um, I was kind of su- kind of surprised by this, but the area of the country that's being hit the most with HIV AIDS is uh, the southern states of the United States. Yeah. Uh, South Carolina, Alabama, uh, those areas. And it's because people are poor and they don't have um, access to uh, good medical care. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's still still an ongoing problem. Another thing about this, though, is that it's it's really during this time of crisis that people come together, whether it's bottoming out from alcoholism or facing uh, an epidemic or an earthquake. It's it's interesting how human beings kind of gather together and, and, and help each other. Why don't you talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about your experience personally getting into Alcoholics Anonymous and getting sober in San Francisco during that time. Would you mind doing that? No, not at all. Um, I, I love your podcast, by the way, and, I, and the way you talk, what you've said about your, your beginnings, mm-hmm. too. Um, but... Uh, and I, every time I listen to one of your podcasts, I think I'm awfully grateful that I got sober in San Francisco, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where things were a little are a little more liberal. Yeah, I think than maybe where they, where you are. Yeah, but um, I went through a hospital treatment program, inpatient treatment program in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It was almost quite literally exactly one year from the date that I moved to San Francisco that I went into treatment. Okay. So October the 4th of 1983. And and I've stayed sober ever since. I, I'm not sure why, except uh, one thing is, I am absolutely convinced that I only have one recovery mm-hmm. in me. I, I don't know why I feel that way, but I felt that way always and feel it very strongly mm-hmm. that I got one chance. And you mentioned uh, the the coming together of people mm-hmm. um that was so important we didn't hear a lot about a lot of god talk no. really in the meetings that i went to at the at the beginning mm-hmm. so that that whole thing was not much of an issue right. for me and what we did rely on though so much was each other mm-hmm. and that became clear from the very beginning and my memories today of those early days in alcoholics anonymous all center around the people, the the friends that I made, and the people that I hung out with, and my whole life centered around Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I would go to six or seven meetings a week, yeah, and yeah. all of my friends were in were friends I made in AA, mm-hmm. and so it was a big part of my life, and still is mm-hmm. uh, even to this day. It's still a big part of my life. I sponsor people today and uh, uh, go to meetings still, uh, but. The, those early days, the first five years were, were really basic for me. Yeah. I stuck to the, I really stuck. I had a great sponsor mm-hmm. who did a step study meeting in his home every week. And I went to that for about 10 years mm-hmm. every week. And I really stuck to, stuck to the basics. I always feel, felt like I got a good foundation in AA so that and drum roll, please. <laughs> when I came out as an atheist, mm-hmm. uh, it was much easier for me. I was, I already had a good foundation and I was 17 years sober yeah. when I came out as an atheist. I was just trying to think of what it felt like. And the best way to describe that is it felt like I, I took the saran wrap off of my life. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, when I, that all of a sudden life felt so much freer and fresher. And I like this burden had been lifted off of my, off of my recovery. Right. Cause I, it had been a, it, that, the whole, that had been a problem for me from mm-hmm. day one. Really? The whole, uh, yeah. I can remember being in treatment and they, they, they sort of said, you, well, you have to have a higher power. And I said, okay, how about Neiman Marcus? <laughs> and, and they said, sure, if that works for there you. you. And yeah. So I did that for a while, and then I realized I needed to take it more seriously. And I, I spent a long time really trying to figure that out, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what that meant for me. I spent years mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. And it was, uh, I, and I bounced from one thing to another. I ended up with sort of this vague, humanistic kind of concept of mm-hmm. a higher power mm-hmm. and i finally realized that i didn't even have to call it that anymore. yeah that's how i am now too i don't even use the term that much anymore yeah yeah people yeah. help me yes exactly um but that's that's kind of the way it was for me in the early days lots of meetings lots of uh lot always going out for coffee or yeah. or dinner or something after meetings yeah. uh, so that you're, it would be the whole evening it reminded me when i was and, reading the book you would talk about sometimes how san francisco is a small town and i would feel that way here in kansas city too and i guess kansas city probably is kind of a small town comparatively but but it's like when you're in aa you it's like you're constantly running into somebody you know from a meeting oh absolutely or, you know, something yeah. like that here yeah yeah, San Francisco too. Well, San Francisco's not nearly as big True. as a lot of people think it is. Right. You know, it's not that it's under I think still under a million people. Okay, yeah. And then when you then when you subdivide that into the gay community right. and then you subdivide that again into the gay recovery community. Right. It gets even smaller. So yeah. but it, it ne- nevertheless anytime you're out and about you'll run into someone you know. Yeah. Uh, almost always. But that part of going out for coffee, you know, with, with your friends and so forth, that I think that was a big part that helped me with my um, recovery early on, too. I w- for me, um, I, I did not have the benefit uh, like you did of, of maintaining those, those friendships for such a long period of time. But my first, like, several years in AA... I mean, that, that's what I did all the time. The, I mean, the people that I yeah. went to meetings with mm-hmm. or the people that I would go to movies with or go out to eat with yeah. and, and, and all of that. And, uh, we just formed a really, um, tight band of brothers, I guess. We were all in our twenties yeah. and early thirties, you know, so they were people I could relate to. And, and that probably did more for me than any of the step work or anything else. Just having people like that in my life. I agree. And, you know, my sponsor used to say, you don't really have to worry about working the steps. If you stick around long enough, the steps will work you. Yeah. And I, I think that, that those friendships is a way that that kind of happens. Uh, so. Because we talked about that for so, you know, every night we would, we would talk about where we were in the steps and all of that and what we were doing and, right. and uh, how we were applying it to our lives. And that I think is what's so important is that philosophy, if you will, of the steps gets applied yeah. in a practical way. Yeah. And that's what those, that's what those relationships were all about for all of us, I mm-hmm. think, was learning how, learning how this stuff works in real life. And, yeah. and that's what I try to do today with my sponsees, yeah. uh, is we don't, I don't actually 
tutor them on the steps and we don't go through the steps. Like, right. But of course, all of my sponsees have 15 years or, uh-huh. or so. Uh-huh. I don't have any real newcomers. Uh-huh. But we just talk about how we, how, what's happening in our lives and how we use what we've learned in AA to, to help problem solve, if yeah. you will. Yeah, that's, that's, pretty much what I do. I, I don't actually sponsor anybody now. I after my I'm kind of in a, a weird kind of a place with the program where I left a traditional meeting like three years ago and started an agnostic mm-hmm. meeting. And yeah, I know we're a little less organized, I guess, as far as like, you know, we do talk about steps and so forth, but we're, we're not really good about doing the sponsor thing and all that kind of stuff. But some people yeah. do. Some, some of us do. But it seems to be working for us. Well, mine is, I think, a lot more casual than yeah. than a lot of people do, even here. Um, the the way I do it is a lot more casual yeah. than than uh, some people. And I, you know, I let's face it, you know, as I still go to traditional meetings mainly because I don't have that many options, right? Uh, and also. I, the pushback here is not like it is, I think. Oh, in other no. For example, my, my home group, there are a handful of people in that group that are also atheists. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And I feel perfectly comfortable talking about how I, how the, pro, how the program works for me yeah. in that meeting without any, getting any real pushback yeah. from people. So it's, it's, uh, I feel, I think I'm lucky in that way to be mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Where where I had that I had that option. Mm-hmm. So when you were first getting sober, were you going to a gay group? <laughs> Almost exclusively. Yeah. Uh, and the, in San Francisco, it was a little different. The there weren't weren't really just groups, right? You know, each meeting was mm-hmm. individual. For example, one church might host five or six meetings, mm-hmm. but they were not connected to each other. Right. They were all separate. They, it wasn't a group that had five or six meetings. It was each meeting was a separate meeting. Right. I was talking and, to a friend from L.A. Uh, I guess that's how it is in California. You have more like meetings than you do groups, per se, don't you? Well, well not here in Sacramento. Sacramento is very group. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and that was hard for me to uh to understand when I first moved here, I didn't quite get it, mm-hmm. what it meant. And it feels a little like sororities and fraternities, you know, yeah, like people yeah. will say, well, what's their home group? Exactly. And if you say a certain name, well, they, they automatically assume you're a certain kind of person. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You know? yes, yeah, that's how it is um, in Kansas City. But it, it wasn't that way in San Francisco. And it, the group was just a gang of guys gotcha. that sort of ran out, ran around together, and we would say, are you going to St. Luke's on Saturday and mm-hmm. somebody would say, yeah, let's, let's meet there, you know? And so a group would go, show up at that particular meeting that night, Yeah, but it wasn't one of those things where there was a, there was a, a strict, you know, like group right. that we all belonged to, but definitely I went to mostly gay meetings. There were probably a hundred, 150 gay meetings a week wow. then Incredible. in San Francisco. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, I was, yeah. the reason I asked you, I was talking to, um, a friend last night about your book and she's actually my service sponsor. You might say she's really involved with oh, our central office and the area assembly and so forth. But she got sober around the same time that you did. And she also went to a gay group here in Kansas city. And I think that that group was probably, oh boy, was probably pretty new at that time. Anyway, I was talking to her about your book and about how, um, 
how it affected me and, and how I, how I was beginning to have a better appreciation of, of what was going on. And she talked to me about how our group, Live and Let Live, was the gay group in Kansas City, still is. And she said that it was just the people were just being decimated, that um, gay men were just, uh, they lost a lot of members. And then she would yeah. talk, she would talk yeah. about like um, how you even mentioned in your book, like there's like only one funeral home in Kansas City that would even take um, people um, that that died of AIDS, and um, it was just really interesting talking to her about that time and 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 what it was like at that group. And and I'm wondering, kind of, if you know, I'm sure, of course, San Francisco culturally is so much different than Kansas City, but I'm kind of wondering if that if that is what got that is that if that is that what made that group so important um, was was that crisis because at that time, and I go back in my memory. Like, um, of course, I'm in the Midwest, okay, so it's completely different. But mm-hmm. th- there weren't a whole lot of openly gay people that I knew, um, yeah. um, you know? So I oh, think. there probably were, John. But I just didn't <laughs> just know. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> but, but. I didn't know that. There was probably a. As a matter of fact, I dated a guy from Kansas City while I was really? in Dallas uh, for a while. Okay. He was a Catholic priest. Okay. <laughs> there probably was more than I realized. But I, I don't know. But I think I think it was a little bit different. I think that there was more of a need for the group, maybe for the gay group, than because right now that group isn't doing too well. Um, it's it's oh, yeah, interesting. It's struggling, and I well, I I, I think the the younger people today um, don't have the sense of community that we had back then, or, or maybe the need for it. Maybe they don't feel the need yeah. for it like we did. Yeah. Um, and again, you're asking a question that's really hard to answer because I just I don't know whether the AIDS crisis made us closer mm-hmm. or whether we were close just because we were all in recovery together. Right. That was that initial question that I posed. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. I don't I you just don't, don't know, know it all kind of came the, together. The, the intersectionality of all of those uh, those uh, those factors. Yeah. So that's what. That's what made it interesting yeah. for me to yeah. do this. But you mentioned losing people. I, I don't know whether this was in the book or not. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was. But this is true for my life. Is I can remember, and this happened in the 90s. I was I got out my Rolodex one day and took out over 100 cards wow. of men who had died just in that year. You know, and I couldn't, I couldn't bring, ever bring myself to throw them away. And I would bundle them up with a rubber band. And keep them by year, yeah. little 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 bunches of of Rolodex cards, you know. Yeah. Long before we had cell phones. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember the days when you had to remember yeah. a phone num- phone number. Actually. <laughs> oh well, I you know I was when I got sober. It was after I got sober that I got my first answering machine. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it was still very early on in the in the technology. Uh, when we were when we were all getting so yeah we all had little business cards uh-huh. with our phone numbers on them that uh-huh. we would pass around that's where these cards came from yeah. from the Rolodex yeah you know all these little cards that we would pass out to each other it's kind of yeah. funny to think back to that um, to how much things have changed just technology wise you know like um, phones and phone numbers yeah. and uh, how we would communicate and you know. 
I, I'm like you. I, I think I was um, I was quite a few years sober before I actually had an answering machine. So if I was not at home, nobody was going to get a hold of me. You know exactly. <laughs> well, and you know we were talking about going out for dinner and for coffee and stuff, uh, and I think that doesn't happen as much now yeah. as it did then. And I think the technolo- technology has something to do with that. Yeah. Um, the, the, right. the kids are are on their their connection is um you know messaging and 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 Facebook which is something I you and I haven't talked about uh-huh. is I still keep keep my anonymity on Facebook except for your group uh-huh. which of course is private uh-huh. um, but I don't post things about my recovery on Facebook I it's just a personal I don't. I don't object to it. If right. other people want to do it, I think that's fine. But there's just something, I think it has to do with my age yeah. and how long I've been sober and stuff that it just feels like something I shouldn't do. Yeah. You know? Facebook is a weird place. Uh-huh. I, 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 um, I, I initially stayed away from it. I guess I got my Facebook account, but I never did anything with it. But my wife was on it all the time. And, uh, then finally, when I got, I went to that, um, conference in Santa Monica the agnostic yeah yeah and then when we came yeah. back from that we all kind of started a facebook group and i started connecting with people that way so i'm getting a little bit looser with it now especially with the podcast you know um because people will um comment about it sometimes i'll forget oh is this a private place or not a private place or whatever but it is kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is and i'm getting i've loosened up a little bit too with it uh and the the thing that hooked me on facebook of course was reconnecting yeah with with people and there are four or five men who left san francisco mm-hmm. and have moved other places one guy in dallas mm-hmm. uh, who's living in dallas now and a couple in seattle mm-hmm. who were friends back then uh with whom i I've, I've reconnected mm-hmm. on facebook and uh so that's been a that's been a great uh, a, the greatest thing about Facebook to me is is reconnecting and my very first friend ever in my life she and I were friends when I was three years old she and I have reconnected on Facebook so oh, that's neat. so that's been yeah so so I guess the technology is good I don't know it's changing AA certainly uh, and that's <clears throat> not a bad thing no um, you know AA might need to be dragged into into the 21st century. Yeah, a little bit. I think it probably should. It probably could. There's some things that we could probably update a little bit, but, um, yeah. you know, AA has, we do have kind of an interesting culture. I was, um, I was talking to my wife about, um, I'm going to be going to speak at two Alcathons this year. Do you have Alcathons oh. in California? Yes, we do. Sure well, do. My wife just gets a kick out of that name, Alcathon. You know, that's got to be a uniquely know. AA. <laughs> I <laughs> Round the clock AA meetings, honey. Can you imagine such a thing? Yes. Yes. So, yes, we do have them here. And um, I'm a, I'm not much of a night owl. No. So I they've never I've never been you know, unless they can schedule me for like a meeting during the daytime, it's it's not my it's not not my thing. But uh, we do have them here, and they're they're certainly a, a great asset. As I mentioned in the book, uh-huh. you know that um, that the 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 four characters one at one New Year's Eve worked uh, the phone lines at a mm-hmm. at a it was a a service for people who had had too much to drink could uh-huh. call That's in right. and get a safe ride home. Yeah. Yeah. And 
we actually did that in San Francisco for a few years. I don't know whether they're still doing it or not, uh-huh. but um, that that was the closest I ever came to an Alcatraz, <laughs> was staying up to help people find a ride home. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, though, too. But my time doing. to do them is like um, they will have me at like some odd time, like 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so the, like last year I spoke and I actually turned it into a podcast, but there were like, um, I think two people in the audience and then one of them left in the middle of my talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah. You you can't take that as an editorial. No, <laughs> no. He just had to go get some coffee or something. <laughs> yeah. So, um. But I guess let's let's just kind of get kind of um, get back into to the experience of of writing the book. Um, you mentioned okay. that you mentioned that it you know obviously it had to be a difficult thing for you to do because you're you're going back to some memories. Can you talk about the whole process of writing the book and what you went through emotionally and how how did you take you, these personal experiences um, that actually happened and turn them into a novel? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um... I I need to go back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I started doing these books when I retired. I had six books out mm-hmm. that are specifically. I got so tired of go- looking for books to read, and they were all about twenty year olds right. or seventeen year olds, right. you know. And I thought they're not the only people that have a life. <laughs> and so I started writing. I wrote the first one when I was fifty nine. Mm-hmm. I was just about to turn sixty. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing this for about eleven years now. Okay, and uh, I I knew all along that eventually this book was going to have to be I was going to have to deal with this topic. Uh, the time finally came where I couldn't avoid it any longer, and so I sat down to start this book. and And um, what the interesting thing about it is that if you if you you really look at the book, there's not any plot. There's mm-hmm. no plot in mm-hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. The plot is AIDS. You know, mm-hmm. it's the progression of the disease, mm-hmm. but but it's really anecdotal. The right. book, every chapter is a is sort of like an anecdote uh, of about what's going on. Even though the characters do grow and mm-hmm. change, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a central plot line of any right. kind. And I worried that about that at first, and then as I was doing the rewriting, I realized that that was probably okay. Yeah. That was probably okay to do to to leave it that way, and but the emotional process was something else. Uh, one of my sponsees and I meet every every week mm-hmm. for coffee, and he was so glad when I finally got through with this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, "I was so tired of seeing you all puffy eyed <laughs> from spending all day crying." Yeah. Over- book because i did i mean and i still when i try to to talk about this book it still gets very emotional sure for me um uh because again like i said in the introduction to the book the characters all are all based on people that i knew mm-hmm. or that still know mm-hmm. and and yet they became uh fictional characters as i began to write them mm-hmm. you know they they took on a life of their own and they certainly are not exact people that I that I knew in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is, and I did this on purpose, that one of one of the characters, the character Hugo in the book, mm-hmm. it was uh, a dear friend of all of ours. And they the and he died mm-hmm. of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the book, uh, I deliberately 
let him live. I, I hope I'm not giving anything away to people, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to do that because he still, he really does live, is still living for all of us. You know, we still yeah. think of him all the time. And, and, um, that was, that was really important to me mm-hmm. to, uh, to give him that, to give him that gift, yeah. if, if you will. So it was, yes, to answer your question, it was a very emotional, uh, experience, but, one I'm glad, I'm so glad that I did. And it's a book that I'm really, really proud of. Yeah. I, you um, know, um, when I was reading it, um, I was brought to tears a number of times and it would, it would be, um, like this, this always gets me, whether I'm watching a film, reading a book, um, when somebody finally faces that time in their life where they realize that they have a problem and then, and then someone reaches uh-huh. out and helps them, that always stirs emotion in me and I get, and I get weepy. Yeah. And then also, of course, just the, 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 the death and the, and the love that people had for one another. Um, and, and, and what was going on there too. There was just a lot of, there was just a lot of things that going on in that book that, that, um, triggered a lot of emotion in me. And, and I, I welcome that to be honest with you. I used to somehow automatically try to shut down if I were to, like experience any sort of tears or crying or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I welcome mm-hmm. it now. I, I, I like to yeah. have that, that, um, I guess awareness or feeling or whatever. It's almost like a release in a way. I, I, it, yeah. it's, no, it's it is. It is a release. I learned early on during this, my years in San Francisco that, um, to, to learn how to do that, to, re- to be emotional and yeah. let the, let emotions. Otherwise, I, I think I might have gone insane yeah. if I hadn't been able to do that. Yeah. And so it was very important. To, and I'm still, I'm still weepy. I mean, uh-huh. uh, YouTube videos can have me in tears, <laughs> you know, uh, in nothing flat. So yeah. I wonder uh, sometimes, I, is it because I'm getting older that I'm more emotional like that? I don't know, but I, I do I don't know. It. You know, my first sponsor, who was a dear man, uh, he was Australian and uh, had lived in the United States since the 50s and was an advertising executive in New York and then moved to San Francisco. And he was just wonderful. Um, we called him the Rose Kennedy of gay AA <laughs> in San Francisco. He was, he was quite well known. And he was, as a matter of fact, he spoke at the uh, international AA conference in uh, New Orleans oh. uh, back in the seventies. He was the first openly gay man to speak there. Oh, and uh, anyway, he was a wonderful guy, but he used to say to us, you know, having feelings and being upset and being angry. And these are all privileges of sobriety. You know, these are the things that you've earned and how you learn to deal with those is how you, how you work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, that's, so we all were sort of brought up with that, that it's okay to, to, to be angry at the Reagan administration and, you know, and to be sad when our friends die. I mean, literally, Early on, you would run into somebody on a Tuesday, and they would say, "Oh, I just got back from the doctor, and I tested oh, positive." And you would be at their memorial on Saturday. God. That's what got me I mean, when I was, was reading bad, the book. Bad. In the early days, the, they died fast, didn't they? It's from the time they really found bad. out. That was so incredible. Yeah. yeah. And you notice that yeah. in the book, that progression as the as the years went on, that they hung around a little bit longer. I guess as the treatments right. Started. And um, I have a, a boyfriend right now, mm-hmm. and he's uh, HIV positive. And uh, the difference in his 
prognosis, his treatment, his outlook is so vastly different from what it was like, you know, 30 years ago. It's just completely different. Of course, he's responsible. You know, he Mm -hmm. takes care of Mm -hmm. himself and and uh, and does what he's supposed to do. Um, But it is it's a very different kind of thing now. And he's still very active Mm -hmm. in in. uh, getting the getting the word out, mm-hmm. you know, there's, that's still that's still very important. Yeah, it, it, uh, education and informing people yeah. about HIV and what it means, and 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 preventative mm-hmm. uh, measures too. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's um, another good reason I think that people should read this book, regardless of if, whether you're, you're gay or straight or in AA or not in AA. It's just, it's just a really good thing. Um, it's just really good to have that awareness of, of what happened and what is still happening. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I, I really appreciated from it. I just felt a little bit more connected to, um, yeah. my gay friends now. Cause I, I do hear people talk in meetings, um, at our group. Um, we have, a, we have a lot of gay people in our group, but I hear them talking mm-hmm. about that time. And of course I, I, you know, I, I, I get it, but, but when I, when I was reading your book, I felt it. And, um, there's, oh, a, good. there's a big difference, you know? Well, I've been very touched by some of my, some of my readers are people I never ever would have expected mm-hmm. to be, because uh, like like I said earlier, you know, I really wrote these books for guys like me, for mm-hmm. gay men my age, mm-hmm. to have something to read, mm-hmm. and yet um, I have lots of there are women who read my books, mm-hmm. and who uh, uh, one woman who I went to high school with wrote me and said that she's instructed her children that she wants my books in her, in her coffin with her but uh she but you know it it's i i hope that there are people like you who uh-huh. will get a better understanding of what was happening and it shaped us Sometimes I think my friends back home in Texas don't understand who I am today yeah. because they weren't where I was yeah. at that time. And it and it did change me, and it did um, make me evolve into a person I might not have been mm-hmm. had I not ended up in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, when I did. So, so I thank you. I'm glad that you you enjoyed the book, and I hope other other I, I, I welcome, you know, I have a lot of straight friends too, mm-hmm. and I, I love it when I hear from them and that, that they are, are able to get something from my work too. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And I'm going to be reading more, um, more fiction and more novels, uh, because like I say, I, I, I really do, um, there's something special about there. There's a different experience from reading, um, a novel as opposed to reading, um, nonfiction. And I, and I enjoy, yeah. I enjoy the non, the nonfiction too, but, but you can really get a lot out of it because it, it plays on your emotions too. And that's, I think, yeah. really important as part of the human experience yeah. anyway, as we said. So yeah. well, I was an English major in college mm-hmm. and, uh, um, so I've always loved novels. Yeah. Um, you know, I love fiction and I think I, most of what I know about history, for example, is probably from um, from novels, yep. you know, from fiction. And uh, so fiction has always been my go-to mm-hmm. for reading and for and for my uh, artistic expression too. Is, has it's always been fiction for yeah. me? 
Yeah. Well, thank you very much for letting me know about your book and for writing the book and for agreeing to do this podcast and and for everything that you're doing. Um, I just really feel like it's a real honor to have had this conversation with you. Um, it's just uh... well, the honor is mine. <laughs> I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time, and uh, uh, just appreciate this opportunity so much, and will continue to be a, a fan of yours. Oh, thank um, you. I love and I, and I, I love yours. the podcast, <laughs> and uh, uh, and I al- you know I almost came to to uh, Austin uh-huh. for the for the conference last year i had planned to Ah. and some things came up at the last minute and i was not able to go and you were the first person i wanted to go up and introduce myself to when i got there (laughs) well i won't keep you any longer thank you so much for this opportunity it's just been wonderful and i hope we'll stay in touch via your your website absolutely all right thank you okay thanks Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed recording this. Uh, Hey, if you can think about it, if you have any ideas at all for a podcast, please send me an email at john at aabeyondbelief.org. Also, please uh, consider supporting us at Patreon by donating uh, just a dollar or two a month to help with expenses. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash aabeyondbelief. Thank you so much for your support. We'll be back again real soon.